All right, I think the well, we've got a couple of announcements, but the most uh, significant one, I think, is that um, Jim, this, the memorial service for Jim Burney is going to be uh, on Saturday morning, July the 12th at 10.30 in the morning. So that morning we will not have our monthly uh, men's prayer breakfast. The deacons meeting that we have that have scheduled for that week, we'll just move that up a little earlier. And so the service will be held here at West Houston Bible Church at 10.30 on that particular morning. And then there will be a uh, reception afterward. So you can put that on your on your calendar. Some of you didn't know Jim. Some of you would have known him because he sat back in the back from almost the beginning of the time that we had this space. We realized, I think somebody walked in off the street one day, homeless person, and wandered around, and we needed somebody to sit uh, at the entrance. I think at that time, this was the entrance, the primary entrance, and so he volunteered to do that, and then later he always sat out in the fellowship hall back here to just kind of have his eye on the door and uh, had developed, uh, had some kidney problems. And so that's what eventually uh, led to the way the Lord took him to be uh, home with him uh, last week. So uh, the service will be a week from Saturday. The only thing else, the July 6th is the deadline for this first box to go to uh, Jim Meyer's ministry. And then to check the uh, email addresses, make sure everything's up to date. There's one, in, I think, in the foyer and one out in the fellowship hall. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we are in fellowship, ready to focus, and ready to concentrate. Trust me, this class and probably the next one, there's going to be a lot of new material, some new material. But I've taught the framework many times, so you'll get that and get some new additional information on that, so it'll be good for, for everyone to go through. But it does get a little, uh, a little technical, but it's good to go through this. I've taught this about, for about 30 years, and I find it one of the, my favorite topics to teach because it helps us understand the word so much. So, uh, with that, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Our Father, we are so very grateful that we have this opportunity that we can come together three times a week to focus upon you, to study your word, to reflect upon the uh, eternal principles of your word, that in this we are grounded in that which has eternal value. And Father, we're thankful that we, as we study through this series on your plan for the ages, it gives us a focus on the past and the present and that everything in history is driving towards a purpose that you have established from eternity past. Each dispensation has a distinct purpose, a distinct uh, uh, distinct characteristics, and it's designed to teach and instruct us with regard to your grace, with regard to faith and our dependence upon you, and with regard to the way you provide for us, and above all to emphasize that there is uh, nothing that we can do on our own, that we have to be totally dependent upon you in order to have life work. The only way to be oriented to uh, to life is to be oriented to the reality of your creation as you have designed it. 
So, Father, as we continue our study, help us as we think through the Scriptures tonight in some different and challenging ways that we can be better students of your Word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles initially tonight to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at a couple of different passages tonight, just pop around a little bit. Uh, but we'll start with Acts chapter 2, and I encourage you, as I do on occasion, to make notes in your Bible, make notes in the margins, and you can daisy-chain some of the Scripture, reference, scripture references that, that I go to. Acts chapter 2 is, in terms of fitting this within our study of, the, of, of dispensations, is a critical passage in terms of understanding the church age and how the church age fits within this panorama that began uh, in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram and set aside the Jewish people as a distinct group through whom he would work to bless all the nations. And that had a shift that occurred in terms of God's plan for the ages. But as we have studied from the creation up until the call of Abram, God, there was only one... one uh, one one ethnic group, essentially, and that's the, the Gentiles. But when God called Abram, that started a distinct group through whom God would work, a group through whom he would reveal himself, he would reveal Scripture, they would be responsible for writing down Scripture and preserving Scripture uh, down through the ages. And so it is, and it was through them that the Messiah would come. And so as you go through the Old Testament, there is the progress and the development of an understanding of this messianic thread that runs through the Old Testament. From the very first proto-evangelium, as it is called, the first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, that, uh, that through the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent would be defeated. And you trace that word seed as you go down through the Old Testament and it relates again and again to the Messiah, and there are additional uh, prophecies that are given in relation to to the Messiah. And there are also prophecies given in relation to the future of God's people, Israel. There are prophecies related to their future glory, where they will be uh, restored to their land. There's the warning that they would be disobedient, that they would fail, they would be uh, succumb to idolatry, and God would remove them from the land. Th- these <clears throat> cycles of discipline we studied, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 28 and 29. But then there's the promise of restoration that is embedded in Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 29 and 30, as we studied recently, outlines the land promise, the land covenant that God had promised to Israel. In the Abrahamic covenant, there were three components. God promised a piece of real estate that would be the eternal possession of the Jewish people. There would be a uh, seed. The seed promised the descendants to Abraham that they would be uh, <coughs> innumerable like the stars of the sky or the sands of the, of the sea. And there would be, <coughs> then through them, there would be a worldwide blessing. So the... Uh, land promise was expanded in this land covenant of Deuteronomy 29. The bl- seed promise was expanded in the covenant with David in Second Samuel chapter 7, that God would provide a descendant who would sit upon the throne of David, rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem, a literal throne in a literal city, and establish a literal 
kingdom for Israel that would go into perpetuity. It was a part of the same eternal covenant as the Abrahamic covenant. And then as when that was fulfilled, as we've been studying, when the, when the land covenant is fulfilled and the Jewish people are fully restored to the land, at that time the Messiah comes, we believe, the second time establishing his kingdom on the earth as the son of David, establishing his rule from Jerusalem. And then finally, there is the establishment of the spiritual aspect of those covenants, the new covenant, which is related to the changed spiritual life of the Jewish people. This is in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34. Those three come together. Now, when you get into the New Testament, as we studied last time, the time, the dispensation of the, of the Messiah when Jesus came and offered himself as the Messiah, that he was the uh, one who would bring in the kingdom. He was a descendant of David. He was qualified, fit these prophetic parameters. That's the focal point of the Gospels, uh, fits those uh, prophetic parameters. Then he was rejected by his people, crucified, as a blasphemer for claiming to be the king of the Jews, claiming to be God. And then on the third day, he is risen from the dead, a validation from God that he was indeed the promised Messiah. In Joel, in Acts chapter 2, which is on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the day of Passover, this is when uh, the church is born as a new distinct entity. And something distinct happens there. We've studied this in the past in our study of Acts, that when starting in the uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. That refers to the disciples, not to the uh, 120 who had met earlier, but this is the disciples. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. So there's this huge noise like a tornado coming through the house, and there's a visual element to this. There was appeared to them as if tongues of fire, flames of fire over each of them, over each of the disciples, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a, a new event that occurs spiritually. God, the Holy Spirit, indwelt each of those disciples, and they began to speak as an objective, validating aspect. They began to speak in other languages. These weren't mystical languages. This wasn't ecstatic utterance. They were speaking in other languages, and that's. And then they went out from there to the temple, and as they are talking to those on the temple grounds about Jesus as the Messiah and what has happened, we're told in verse 6 that each one was hearing them in their own language. This is validating the fact that they were speaking a dialect or a language. They weren't just speaking in some sort of ecstatic gibberish. And they were raising the question when they heard these supposedly uneducated Galileans um, speaking in these various languages. In verse 8, they raised the question, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, districts of Libya, Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, they hear them in their own tongue. So they've come from all over, 
And there are estimates from based on Josephus, he may have exaggerated, that that o- over a million Jews would come to Jerusalem during uh, during Passover or during Pentecost, and the streets were just swelled with all of these pilgrims that that would come for these dates. And so the question is, what's going on here? Everybody's asking questions about the, the disciples and what they are saying. And then Peter, uh, who is one of the 11, stood up, and he opened up his... Um, open up with a sermon explaining what was going on. Verse 14, we have the address. He says, Men of Judea and to all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now, this is really what I'm focusing on. What does Peter mean when he says this is what Joel said? Because he then quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And I'm just going to read that for you. Let me, um, let me go over here to the screen. Why am I not? There we go. Okay. I'm going to go to... I set up earlier. Yeah, it did. Okay. The computer crashed. I had it all set up, and then it crashed. So we always have this lovely thing. So while that's starting up, uh, let me go ahead and read this to you. It's a quote from Joel 28, 2, 28 to 32. Now, Joel is is one of the 12. In the English Bible, we refer to them as the minor prophets, not because they're less significant, but because they are... um, they are small. And Joel writes specifically with regard to the end times, the last days in the uh, Jewish prophetic plan. He is talking about what will happen at the end of days. And he writes, it, and this is what uh, Peter is quoting from the Septuagint, it shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Is that what's going on here on the day of Pentecost? No. There's no, the only thing we see on the day of Pentecost is that they are uh, speaking in tongues. So what Joel says here in Joel 2, let me set this up here real, very quickly so you can see the text. This is what happens when you get everything all set up and the computer crashes. Okay. So Peter is reading from this in Joel 2.28. So your sons and daughters will prophesy. Nobody's prophesying on the day of Pentecost. Your young men shall see visions. Uh, no men, uh, no young men are dreaming dreams or seeing visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Uh, and also my men servants and all my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit on those days and they shall prophesy. In verse 19 of Acts, Peter goes on to say, I will grant wonders of the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. So what Peter is talking about in this quote 
from Joel 2, 28 to 31, is what happens immediately preceding this great end-time cataclysmic event when the day of the Lord comes and brings judgment on all of the enemies of Israel, rescues Israel from uh, virtual destruction or, or pending destruction, and establishes them uh, in the land. And Peter is saying in this sermon, he says, this is what Joel is talking about. So what does it mean that this is what Joel is talking about? Because what has happened there on the day of Pentecost with the these new uh, Christians, these Messianics, are saying that, are, are speaking in these unlearned languages, but that's not even mentioned in Joel 2. Joel 2 mentions many other things, dreaming dreams, visions, uh, signs in the heavens, signs on the earth. None of those things are happening on the day of Pentecost. In fact, what the only thing that happens on the day of Pentecost is not mentioned in Joel 2. So how can Peter be saying this? What is he talking about? And it's quotes like this in the New Testament that have caused especially liberal Christians, but there are some conservatives as well as to how they handle this, think that New Testament writers misused and distorted Old Testament Scripture. And we look at passages where you read a New Testament writer says this is the fulfillment of something stated in the Old Testament Scripture, and you go back and you read the Old Testament Scripture and you sort of scratch your head and say, I'm not sure I would have gotten that out of that. And so this has raised the issue in the study of interpretation or hermeneutics on how the, Old, how the New Testament quotes or uses the Old Testament. And this is important because in light of where we've gone, we've studied up to this point God's plan uh, for uh, mankind in terms of his plan leading up to the time of Abraham, from Abraham up to the time of the cross. And now we're going to be looking at the uh, present uh, church age, and then we'll be going on into looking at God's plan for Israel and that God still is going to fulfill these promises and these prophecies that he made to Israel. He hasn't uh, rejected Israel. That's what is known as replacement theology. And we saw a horrible example of that just uh, recently when the uh, Presbyterian Church of the USA voted to divest all investments in anything that the Israelis were involved in. And this is an outgrowth of replacement theology. Replacement theology means that basically the Jews are no longer God's people. They're no longer uh, biblically, prophetically, or historically significant, which is not what the Bible teaches, we believe. And therefore, that becomes and has become over history, the seedbed out of which much Christian anti-Semitism came. Now, that's not true um, for evangelical Christians because we have a different view of the Bible. We are very similar to Orthodox Jews in that we interpret the Bible uh, literally. We believe the Bible is the direct revelation of God through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, and that God so inspired 
or worked through the individual writers of Scripture that without overriding their individual personalities, their individual writing styles, their individual background, that God guaranteed and oversaw their writing so that he could guarantee that what they wrote was without error, so that we believe that what God revealed is inerrant and infallible, both in terms of the Old Testament and in terms of the New Testament. That means that we seem to have a problem, some people think, when we come to passages such as Acts 2, quoting Joel 2, that somehow the writers of the New Testament were paying, playing fast and loose with the uh, passages from the Old Testament because if you go back and you read the context of these Old Testament prophecies, sometimes it looks like, well, how did they get that to apply to the situation they're talking about in the New Testament. So this becomes uh, an important thing to study. Those who do not believe as we do, those who would hold to various forms of replacement theology, believe that the New Testament writers just quote these Old Testament passages in ways that completely redefine the meaning of those Old Testament passages so that they're no longer being interpreted by the New Testament writers in a literal sense. We believe, uh, much as uh, many Orthodox Jews do, that the Bible should be interpreted literally. It refers to literal historical events uh, that occurred in the past. Now, uh, what many Christians are unaware of is that in rabbinic literature, in a study of rabbinic literature, the rabbis during the second temple period quoted the Old Testament in their writings and used that in four different ways. We've studied this in the past, and we see examples of all four of these different ways in Matthew chapter 2. So you might want to go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. So uh, despite the <clears throat> so the claim is often made by that the New Testament authors interpret Old Testament texts according to a rabbinical method known as Midrash or perhaps even Pesher. I'll get into uh, the uh, definitions of this here. In Midrashic methodology, as it's developed, the Midrash, let's just look at a couple of definitions and then we'll, we'll narrow this down. Midrash or Pesher is a principle in rabbinic hermeneutics that often seems to go against the plain, literal meaning of the text, which seems to contradict the historical, grammatical interpretation of of a text. And so in Midrash, you may look at how they have interpreted an Old Testament passage, and you say, well, that doesn't seem like that goes along with the historical, grammatical principle. But essentially in Midrash, uh, it's, they don't deny the literal historical meaning. They are uh, adding to it or applying it in another sense. Uh, Rabbi Jacob Neusner defines Midrash by saying that it corresponds to the English word exegesis. Well, we're all familiar with the English word exegesis. It means to study and to draw out the meaning of a text. But there are many different ways in which people apply the principle of exegesis. If you believe in a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, then exegetically you're going to stay within the parameters of the text. 
If you don't believe in a literal historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture, then what's going to happen is you're going to pretty much make it up as you go along. And, um, and, and that's what happens. Those are the two different uh, uh, ends of the spectrum. Pesher goes beyond Midrash. Pesher is an interpretation or explanation of a verse of Scripture in which a given statement is identified with an event or personality in the present time without regard to its original literal historical context. And so Pesher goes beyond the meaning of the Old Testament. Now, liberals come along and some covenant theologians come along, and they will say that that's what's going on in the New Testament. They are not really interpreting uh, the Scripture uh, literally as they should. So in just to understand a few background points on, on, uh, on hermeneutics, those who believe in a literal historical interpretation of Scripture, what we would call a traditional evangelical hermeneutic, they believe, first of all, that the use of the Old Testament by New Testament writers is under divine inspiration. So when Joel quoted, I mean, when Peter quotes from Joel 2, he's quoting that under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, and so that is shows that it is an inerrant and infallible interpretation. So we believe that they're not just making it up as they go along. They're under the authority of God in the way they're quoting those passages. Secondly, secondly, we believe... Everything okay? All right. Secondly, they believe that the use of the Old Testament is consistent with the single meaning of the text. Now, that's a principle in interpreting the Scripture. We believe that the writer of Scripture had only one meaning, just as, uh, and I often use the analogy, when you sit down to fill out your uh, income tax forms and you read the instructions, you, ha- you try to ascertain the single meaning of the author. Now, sometimes uh, that's difficult. IRS agents don't even know what the meaning of the text is, but we believe that the author has one intended meaning, and God is the ultimate author of Scripture. This is also a belief that is uh, present in um, in rabbinical theology as well. So we believe that the uh, the use of New Testament writers is con- of the Old Testament is consistent with the single meaning of the text and the grammatical historical sense of the Old Testament. Passages. Now, in the dis- this discussion, one of the uh, best students and professors in this area is a man who has been here and taught at one of our pastors' conferences several years ago, Dr. Uh, Robert Thomas. And he would identify this by the term inspired census plenure application. Now, that Latin word, census plenure, just means a full sense. And in academic language and the debate, what you see is that on one side they think, well, there's sort of a fuller sense to these Old Testament passages, and under inspiration, the um, writers of the New Testament are really pulling out something that otherwise you wouldn't see from the text. they just ended it. They wouldn't use the word application. They just talk about this census plenure, where uh, Dr. Thomas has added to this is he says, first of all, it's inspired. There may be a fuller sense to the passage 
that God intended that is not apparent on the basis of a literal historical uh, grammatical interpretation, but since the writers of the New Testament are inspired, they are uh, applying the, they're not denying the historicity or the histor- original meaning of the text in the Old Testament. They're just taking that verse and they're applying it to a present sense situation. And so he calls it ISPA. Now, what I'm going to develop here when I talk about the four views is three of the views are basically what, what Bob Thomas identified as that inspired census plenary application. They just get a little more, more precise. Now, what this means in terms of our understanding of the scripture is that every Old Testament passage must receive its own grammatical historical interpretation in context regardless of how the New Testament uses it. So that means that if the New Testament quotes a passage a certain way and applies it a certain way, that isn't assigning a new meaning to the Old Testament passage. We go back and read that, that passage in its original context, and that's the meaning that, that, that is intended by that passage. The New Testament writer is going to apply it in perhaps a little different way, but under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Second thing we see from this is that the Old Testament passage does not have multiple meanings by being read through the eyes of the New Testament. That violates a key principle in interpretation, which is the single meaning of every text. That is really important. Now, right now, I'm just giving you these principles. They seem a little abstract, but I'll refer to those as we look at various examples in the Old Testament as we go along. Third, The Old Testament passage must, like every passage, be limited to a single grammatical historical meaning. So as a result, Dr. Thomas says that this produces two results. The first one is that the New Testament writer abides by and applies the grammatical historical sense of the passage. That is what we will refer to as a literal prophecy with a literal interpretation. That's his first category. Second, he says that sometimes the New Testament writer goes beyond the grammatical historical meaning to assign a passage an additional meaning in connection with the New Testament context. That's what he calls by this term I introduced called an inspired census plenary application. If you're interested in going beyond this to study this in a little more detail in terms of hermeneutics, then those lectures by Dr. Thomas are on the Dean Bible Ministries website with the Chafer uh, Seminary course. I believe that was uh, 2008 or 2009. I forget. I'm not sure of the year right now. Now, just in terms of understanding the development of this, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Michael Rydelnik have demonstrated through their writings that there's a bit more to this though generally they are in agreement. I want to establish that because they use different terminology, but I want us to make sure we understand that that they're really talking about the same thing, but they just break it down a little differently. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, as you know, was uh, uh, born during the period of World War II in Siberia. His parents uh, met just after the German invasion of Poland, they escaped into Russia and were arrested and sent as spies to uh, Siberia. Uh, Arnold was born while they were in Siberia. They moved back to Poland. 
while they were back to their village in Poland, there weren't very many Jews who were alive to, to return. Within a year, there was another pogrom. Uh, a pogrom was an attempt to destroy, an attack on the Jews to destroy the Jewish people. The Jews in the, these, this area, in these various villages, uh, got wind of this pogrom, escaped in the middle of the night, and walked out of Poland, walked down through Czechoslovakia, and across the border into Australia. So Arnold was about four years old at the time, or five, and then they, I mean, not Australia, Austria, and then they went into a displaced persons camp in Germany for um, for a couple of years before family members were able to bring them to the United States. They, he grew up in Brooklyn. Not long before he bar mitzvahed, uh, he learned the gospel of Jesus as the Messiah, became a Christian. He was never bar mitzvahed. He, uh, not long after that, his family moved to Southern California. After he graduated from high school, he went to Cedarville uh, College at the time, now at Cedarville University, and then to Dallas Theological Seminary in Texas. And I've always said the reason Arnold's hard to understand is because he has a, a Polish, Yiddish, Russian, German, Brooklyn, Texas accent. And it's just hard enough to understand us when we're just ta- talking with a Texas accent. So uh, he, he's very helpful. Michael Rydelnik, on the other hand, was uh, born of parents who were both Holocaust survivors. His mother had become a Christian during the during World War II, but kept it kept it secret, and then made it known when he was a teenager. As a result of that, his father. Uh, uh, divorced his mother. Michael was very angry with her, sought to disprove her whole belief in Christianity, which ultimately led to him becoming convinced of the truth of Christianity. And they are both uh, 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 well-attested scholars. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's been here many times, uh, has his Ph.D. from the University of New York. And Michael Rydelnik has his uh, master's in theology from Dallas and his doctorate from I believe it's Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So anyway, they go back, basing a lot of their work on some uh, pioneering work by a man by the name of David Cooper, dealing with various meanings of Scripture. For some reason, this slide wasn't... Yeah, there it is. Okay. Dealing with four types of meaning that were identified by the rabbis during this period of the Second Temple. Now, after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, Midrashic interpretation got really wild. Uh, It would focus on a word or the shape of a letter or one little letter, and then it would extrapolate from that. But during the period, it's been demonstrated by a number of uh, Jewish scholars that during the period of the New Testament, it was much more... Uh, in line with what we would identify as a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. And they identified four meanings of Scripture indicated by the word pardes. P-R-D-S would be the four, the four consonants. The P stands for peshat, which would indicate the simple or the literal meaning. The second word is the R for remes, which indicates that the passage has a suggestion or a hint of something more. And the third, what's called drash, you can hear that same pronunciation, midrash, okay, that has a mame or, or an M at the beginning, which uh, turns it into a participle. So drash would be an exposition or investigation, 
which drew conclusions that were applied to a new situation. And then the fourth uh, way of interpretation was called sod, which said there's a secret or a mystery, and this was a very broad general uh, general category. And so with these four categories as a, as a background, we can see using examples from Matthew chapter 2 that this was how the New Testament writers interpreted and used Old Testament scripture. And this is important to understand because what we see is that the writers of scripture from the Apostle Paul to Peter to John were all trained within the thinking of Second Temple Period Judaism, and so they were approaching the text in the same way in which someone from their culture and their background would approach the text. So this is important because when we interpret the scriptures, when we're dealing with Paul's writing to the Romans, we need to investigate the background of of, of Rome and understanding the Gentile background there. When we're studying uh, in Corinthians, we need to understand the Gentile background in Corinth and how that impacted the letter. Well, when we're studying in the Gospels, we need to understand uh, these things as well. Now, David L. Cooper, who did a tremendous amount of research on this 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 whole area earlier, he was an uh, he influenced Arnold, influenced Michael Rydelnik. He uh, flourished probably in the middle of the nineteenth, uh, middle of the twentieth century. Expanded these ju- these ideas just a little bit, so that Peshat which referred to the simple meaning of the text, he redefined it or gave it a new terminology, direct fulfillment, where you have a literal prediction in the Old Testament, a prophetic passage, that would have a literal direct fulfillment in the New Testament. That's also uh, Dr. Thomas's first category. Then the second uh, rabbinical category, which is called remez, he saw this as a typical fulfillment. I'll explain that terminology in a minute, where a literal historical event, not a prophecy, but a literal historical event had certain typological significance. It corresponded to some event in the New Testament and was designed to represent that originally in the Old Testament context. Then there's the third category, the drash, This was an applicational fulfillment where a historical event was used to draw out an application with reference to either a future event or a present event sometime sometime later. And then the fourth category he called a summary fulfillment where there was no actual event, uh, where no actual event was prophesied in the Old Testament, but the fulfillment represents a summation of Old Testament prophecies. Now, this is really helpful to understand these things, so we'll get into the first one, which is pretty easy to understand. This was called uh, Peshat in the uh, rabbinical view, where you have a literal prophecy in the Old Testament with literal fulfillment. This is seen in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. The situation in Matthew chapter 2 is that the Magi have come to Bethlehem. They've been, they've seen the star indicating the birth of the Messiah. They seen the star while they were uh, in the east. And so they were in Parthia. The Magi were a sect of Parthian leaders who were responsible for appointing the uh, king of Parthia. 
And the Parthians were feared by Herod the Great because they had tried to conquer Judea when he was first installed as the, as the king, and he had to flee for his life. He sent his family up to uh, Masada uh, for protection, and he fled to Cleopatra in Egypt and eventually made his way to Rome. And uh, um, Caesar gave him an army and sent Augustus gave him an army and sent him back to uh, conquer and to throw out the uh, the Parthians but all his life he was paranoid he was paranoid about the Parthians and so one day here's a knock on his door and these Parthian kingmakers show up on his front doorstep and they say we want to see the king of the Jews and they're not looking for Herod so he is paranoid about this so they've shown up and when they when they show up in in verse um uh Three, when Herod heard about them, he got all of his chief priests and scribes together, according to Matthew 2, verse 4, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And here's our verse. They said to him, so that they refers to this chief priests and the scribes, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet, and So we have the passage here in verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so this verse identifies the birthplace of the, the Messiah. Now this isn't a direct quote from the Masoretic text. It's influenced heavily by the Septuagint, but it comes from Micah, Chapter 5, verse 2, it's Micah 5, 1, in the, uh, the, the way the Hebrew Bible enumerates the verses, and this is taken from the uh, 1918 translation of the Tanakh. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall one come forth unto me, this is God speaking, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old. Now, the Hebrew indicates that his goings forth are from eternity, from ancient days. Well, the only one who can live for eternity is God. So this passage indicates that the ruler who will come to Judah is not only going to be born in Bethlehem, he's indicating humanity, but the fact that he is eternal, his goings forth have been from uh, ancient uh, ancient times that he has been alive for eternity indicates that he's more than human. He is also divine. So this is an example of a literal prophecy because Micah is writing this to foretell the birth of the Messiah, and Matthew is quoting it as a literal fulfillment that the Messiah has been born. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, another example of this initial category of a literal prophecy and literal fulfillment is found in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Uh, that verse is at the bottom of the screen, where the angel Gabriel is quoting now from the Old Testament, in Matthew 1, uh, 123. Or, um, actually, this is Matthew uh, writing, saying, Now all this, that is the announcement uh, of the angel of the Lord to Joseph, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then there's the quote from Isaiah 7:14: Behold, the virgin 
shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So the lower verse indicates the quote from the Old Testament. It's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. The top verse is the uh, Tanakh translation of the of the uh, Masoretic text, and it differs a little bit from most English translations of the Old Testament, and I'll point that out as we go through it. And in the Tanakh, it translates it, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Now, if we look at that context back there in Isaiah, and I've gone through this in in a lot of detail in the past, but basically what is happening is that God has uh, is promised to Ahaz that he's going to have victory, that the line of David is not going to be destroyed by this alliance between the northern kingdom and and uh, Syria, and that a sign that of his promise that is going to be accurate is that there will be this birth. Now, he really gives two signs, as we pointed out, and it's very important to understand the difference in the plural and singular um, pronouns in the Hebrew text here, but there's one sign that's given individually uh, to Ahaz and another sign that is given to the house of David, that the house of David would not be be destroyed. And in verse 13, uh, Isaiah says, listen now, O house of David. So he's addressing the house of David. He says, is it too slight of thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is directed to the house of David, not Ahaz personally. And the sign is going to be, as it's translated in the New King James Version, a virgin will be with child. Now, the Jewish Tanakh translates it, the young woman, which is a literal translation. It's from the Hebrew Alma which can refer to a young woman, but it refers to a young woman, very young, of marriageable age. In various passages, it is clear that she is a virgin, and the rabbis who translated the Septuagint from Hebrew into Greek in Alexandria and Egypt, roughly around 200 to 250 B.C., understood that Ha'ama referred to a virgin because when the rabbis translated this long before Jesus... Uh, translated this into Greek, they translated it with the Greek word parthenos, which refers to a virgin. You've heard of the Parthenon in um, in Athens. And so this was uh, clearly understood to refer to a uh refer to uh refer to a virgin. And so um, he's told that she will conceive and bear a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel. Now, we all know that it's not much of a sign if a virgin gets pregnant. Happens every day, happens all over the world, that virgins get pregnant without benefit of marriage. That's not very miraculous. So for this to be a sign, it has to be something that is is miraculous. That it is, and it also has a definite article there indicating the virgin. That this is a sign, something that was traditional within Jewish thought at the time, going back to Genesis three fifteen, where God said that it's the seed of the woman that is going to be the one who destroys the seed of the serpent. So there's this tradition related to this birth from a woman. And so here um, 
Isaiah indicates this, it is not just a woman, it is the woman which connects it to a specifically understood woman, the virgin, and that she will conceive. That's what makes it a sign, is that a virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son, and the son is named Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's an indication that there's a birth, a humanity, but this one who is born is called God, is given the attributes of God. Isaiah 9-6 in the next, uh, next chapter specifically identifies this one who is born with titles of deity called mighty God. And so that indicates that the, the Messiah that's promised when uh, in these Old Testament uh, prophecies was seen to be both human and divine. Another passage, Isaiah 11.1, is cited by Peter in Acts 13.22 and 23. In Acts 13.22, we read, and when he, Peter is speaking, and he says, or excuse me, um, Paul is speaking, he says, when he had removed him, he raised up for them David his king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and will do all my will from this man's seed, referring to David, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Well, this is a reference back to Isaiah 11.1, 1, where there was a prophecy that at a future time there would come forth a rod. This is a branch from a uh, the stem of, of Jesse, Jesse being David's father and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Davidic monarchy was seen to have uh, figuratively been chopped down by the destruction of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., but this passage is saying, no, that there will come one out of that stump. There will come a branch out of that stump, and that ancient promise to David that he would have a descendant who would rule eternally over over uh, Israel would be fulfilled. Uh, another passage that we see is Isaiah 28:16, uh, combined with Psalm 118:22. I'm just going to skip through a couple of these real quickly. Is cited as being literally fulfilled in Matthew 21:42. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five, there is a a prophecy that the Messiah, the servant of God, would be preceded by uh, someone who announced him, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Luke and Matthew both quote this as fulfillment. Luke 3, 4 quotes it as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And that is applied to John uh, John the Baptist. You have another quotation. Uh, Isaiah 50, verse 6, refers to one who would uh, uh, betray, Jesus, uh, betray Jesus and how he would be mistreated and, and beaten in that scene and in fulfillment in Matthew 26, 67, and in Matthew 27, 26, that he is rejected and beaten. That brings us to the second category. The second category, and this is a fun one. I really like this because it's complex, and you really see how the Scriptures weave some things together and bring it to fulfillment in the New Testament. 
This is the literal plus typical example. A type is where some event or person or thing in the Old Testament is a picture or corresponds to some eternal truth or some event or person in in the New Testament or even later on in the Old Testament. The way we see this portrayed in Matthew 2 is that after the death of Herod, after the um, event uh, where uh, the where Jesus and Mary and Joseph are visited by by the Magi, the Magi are warned by an angel to leave and not go back to Herod. An angel warns Joseph that they need to leave because Herod is going to seek the life of the child, and so they fled to Egypt. After Herod died, the angel appeared to Joseph again and told him to uh, to return to Israel. In Matthew 2.15, we read, And was, they were there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, quote, Out of Egypt did I call my son. This is a quote from Hosea 11.1, 1, which reads, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. God is speaking, talking about the very beginning of the Jewish nation when God is calling them out of Egypt. So when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, is Hosea 11.1 a prophecy? Is that foretelling something in the future? Not at all. It's just simply talking about a historical event, God's redemption of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. But Matthew takes it and and says this is a fulfillment. This is what was fulfilled from the prophet. See, we use fulfillment only, usually only in the first sense, but the Bible has many different ways in which it uses that word fulfillment. This is where a historical event is seen to correspond to an event in the life of Christ, but this isn't random. That's what's so neat about this. You know, it's, he's... Um, uh, Matthew isn't just sitting there going, well, i got to find a verse that sort of fits this. Jesus is coming up from Egypt. This ha- this, there's this verse that sounds like that in, in Hosea. I'm going to pull them together. It's much more important than that. Let's first understand typology. Uh, typology refers to a correspondence or similarity between an Old Testament person uh, such as Moses, who was a prophet, and he said there would be a prophet greater than he that would come. So Moses corresponds to the greater prophet who is the Messiah. A thing would be like the, um, would be like the altar where a, a sacrifice is brought. And this would be, and the altar was wood, which is finite, covered with gold, which is permanent. That would be a picture of the union of deity and humanity in the person of Christ. Or an event such as Passover, such as the sacrifice of a lamb at Passover, a lamb that was without spot or blemish. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus is our Passover. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament was a picture that corresponded to certain features about the the sacrificial Messiah, that he would be without spot or blemish or sinless. And so this is what typology is. You have a person, thing, or event which pictures a New Testament person, doctrine, or teaching, or an event, usually related to either the person or the work of the Messiah.
We have an example of this, pretty simple one, when Israel was going through the wilderness and they were bitten by these various vipers and people were dying. Moses was told to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and if people just looked at the bronze serpent, then they would be immediately healed. In John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he, he draws this analogy uh, with that event, and he is, says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, referring to himself, must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's referring prophetically to the cross. Now, we have some interesting things that happen as the Israelites are going through the wilderness and they're coming into the promised land. And as they are going through uh, these countries across the Jordan, you have Edom and Moab. The, the king of Moab is very uh, extremely jealous of, of, of the Israelites, and he calls upon this, this uh, sort of shady character to come and prophesy against Israel. And we believe that there was a, this, this man, uh, uh, Balaam, who uh, was a prophet of God, but he had apostatized, and he's hired by the... Um, He's hired by the, the Moabites to come and curse Israel. And God say, says, okay, you can go, but you can't say anything without my permission, and you can't curse Israel. And so there are these three, or there's four, actually four oracles that uh, Balaam announces against our, against the Jews, and in those oracles he never can curse them, but he pronounces certain prophetic things in relation to Israel. Now, I want to look at one in, in verse, um, in the second vision and compare it to the third vision. In the second oracle, in Numbers 23, 22, and I wanted to, I'm sorry it's a little small, but I wanted to get both of these on the screen. God, uh, in his vision in Numbers 23, 22, in his oracle, he says, God brings them out of Egypt. Notice the plural. To whom does the them refer? That refers to Israel. He says God brings them out of Egypt. It's a corporate sense there, the pronoun. He has strength like a wild ox. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. So who's being talked about in Numbers 23? It's Israel as a corporate group. Said certain things about them, which we'll look at in just a minute. In Numbers 24, 7 through 9, you have the, th the uh, third oracle. Very similar things are said in the third oracle. The third oracle is talking about an individual, though. It's talking about a future king. It says, He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. Quote, his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So it's talking about this future king. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you and curses he who 
who curses you. Okay, Numbers 23.21. Let's look at this. In Numbers 23.21, we see the introduction to this, this particular um, episode. I think I, I skipped some. Yeah, this verse. A key verse that also relates to this background is that when Moses is sent to Pharaoh, Moses raises the objection, well, what shall I say to Pharaoh? And God tells him, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, what's important to this is that in this verse, God is identifying corporate Israel, all the Israelites, as an entity is adopted by God as his son. Okay, that's going to be important when we come to understanding Hosea 11. One, because 11.1 says, out of Egypt I called my son. He's referring to the corporate entity of the Israelites. Now, in Numbers 23.21, we read, He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. So what we see in this oracle in 2321 that I want to point out here is that it's using a singular pronoun. His God is with him, but it's talking about the nation Israel. So it's talking about the nation as a corporate entity using a third-person singular pronoun to describe uh, him. The King James Version, this is a King James Version I put up here on the screen, and the uh, the uh, Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, that's the Hebrew Bible, uses a third uh, third person singular pronoun there, him, to refer corporately to Israel. That's important to understand because in verse 22, he shifts. He, he in verse 21, he's talking about Israel with a singular pronoun, and in verse 22, he's talking about Israel with a plural pronoun, but he's still talking about that corporate entity. God brings them out of Egypt. So there's a deliberate shift to this plural pronoun to make it clear to the reader that he's talking about the people as a whole. Then he's going to return to a singular uh, pronoun after that, but he's still talking about all the people. Notice uh, he then goes on to read in verse uh, 23, talks about... uh, there's no sorcery against G- Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, oh, what God has done. But what's important is in verse 24. He says, behold, or look, a people, so he's still talking about Israel as a nation, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. So the way we see a description here is that Israel as a nation is described as being like a wild ox and like a lion. They have the power of an ox and the ferocity of a lion. That's describing the nation. Now, this is where it gets really fun. And in the next chapter, in the third oracle, the shift is from the nation to a king. It's no longer talking about an individual. Look at verse 7. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, indicating how Israel is going to grow and expand. 
his king. It's talking about an individual now. It's not talking about Israel, but he's made a typology connection here. Israel in chapter 23 is a type or a picture of the king. So typology isn't just an Old Testament passage picturing a New Testament event. You also have Israel used in Numbers 23 as a type of the Messianic king in chapter 24. And he says, his king shall be higher than Agag. Now there's a textual variant there. In the Septuagint and in other ancient translations and versions, including Qumran, it doesn't have Agag, which is the Amalekite king. It has Gog, who is the traditional enemy of Israel, as mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So it's talking about, a, and in Ezekiel 38 and 9, Gog is the future enemy of Israel that will attack in the latter days that the Messiah will defeat and destroy. So in in uh, verse 24, uh, his king, the Messiah, shall be higher than Gog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him, that is this king, out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies, that's Psalm 2. He shall break their bones, pierce them with arrows. He bows down, he lies down like a lion. So what we see in this chart is that in Numbers 23, uh, Israel is uh, said to be brought out of Egypt as a nation. And this is a type or a picture of the fact that the king also will be brought out of Egypt. It's said in Numbers 23 that God is for them, Israel is a nation like the horns of an ox. And in Numbers 24, God is for the king like the horns of an ox. In, in Numbers 23, Israel is like a lion, but in Numbers 24, the king is like a lion. So Numbers 24 is showing that the king is represented typologically by the nation, but the king is going to be what? He's going to be brought out of Egypt. So when Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son, what is distinct or significant there is that that Hosea not following I mean, Matthew not following the Septuagint, which says, out of Egypt I called my child. Most of the time, Matthew quotes from the Septuagint, but here he quotes from the Masoretic text because the Masoretic text is talking about the, this, uses the term my son. That is a direct correlation to the king passage in Numbers 24 that the Messianic king is going to be brought out of Egypt. So he's not just... Uh, randomly picking Hosea 11 because it's talking about somebody coming out of Egypt. He's picking Hosea 11 because Hosea is 11 is talking, and when he says, out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea 11.1 is alluding to the fact that in Numbers 24 in the third Balaam oracle, Balaam says the king will come out of Egypt. And so that's connected also to the fact that uh Israel is my son, so that Israel as as God's son is a type of the Messiah. So Matthew isn't just randomly pulling this verse out of the uh, Scripture and applying it to Jesus. There's a specific correlation between all of these passages. Now that just looks at the first two ways in which the writers of the New Testament are quoting from the Old Testament. Next time we'll look at the third and the fourth one. Uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to 
study these things, to be reminded that your scripture is very simple in places, but in other times to really dig into the meeting and, and to see what is going on, it, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of study. And we're thankful that as we read in the Hebrew scriptures, we see all of these literal prophecies that are fulfilled, but we also see patterns. We see these types again and again that depict certain things about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And that gives us confidence to believe that that Jesus is the promised and prophesied Messiah of Israel who came to save his people from their sins and that we might have salvation from our sin by simply trusting him, believing that he is the one who died on the cross for our sins just as the lamb was sacrificed for the sins of Israel on Yom Kippur. And so, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.